Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's up, Mets fans? Back here for episode number 68 of the Mets Up Podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, Draft Neck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range. Talking about the New York Mets, and while there still is no baseball, we actually have some things to talk about here. It's not going to be a long episode, but what we got for you, we're going to go in-depth because that's what we always do. We got Jeff McNeil trade rumors. Uh, Pat Regazzo, Sports Illustrated, reported McNeil's on the trading block, and that teams are looking to get him, so that's a big conversation going on right now in Mets world. And then Ben Zosmer, right? Zosmer? Zausmer, Zausmer, yeah. Zausmer, Zausmer, the guy who's the analytical genius, the Oscar fiend, who really doesn't have any background in baseball outside of working for the Dodgers prior to this. He's been uh, promoted to assistant GM, which is uh, pretty exciting stuff. So we'll go deep into Ben Zausmer uh, and break him down a little bit too, because I'm sure a lot of you Mets fans are wondering, who is this guy? What's he all about? You know the drill though, of course, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube channel, Mets Up, you can find us, any social media. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Wherever you listen, you'll be able to find us. And uh, give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. Spotify reviews. Spotify ratings, no reviews. Oh, that's what it is. Yes, Spotify ratings. Give us ratings on Spotify. We need it. It helps the podcast grow. You guys have been great with the support. Keep it up. So, James, let's bring you in here. How you feeling after, you know, your bout with COVID? I'm good. I mean... I had those really couple of rough days that really actually surrounded the recording of the last episodes. You guys kind of caught me at basically my worst like 24 hour stretch between recording and editing, which was kind of funny looking back, but I was okay now. I went back to my parents. I broke the quarantine just in time for Christmas. And that evening, my dad tested positive and now he's been very sick for the last couple of days. So I'm going on three full weeks of isolation. So really getting just bored and starting to get kind of stir crazy, which is fun. Also, Incorrect about Ben Zausmer having no background in baseball. Lifelong baseball fan. Baseball obsessive since a child and has worked okay, in baseball okay. since he was 19 years old. Okay, okay. I thought he was literally just like this like math fiend that they brought in. Both are true. Okay, okay. So he was a baseball fan. Yeah. I, I, playing? Do we know if he played at all? I don't care about it at a high level, but I'm just interested if he played. Um, I'll talk about it later, but basically Moneyball changed his whole perspective because he realized while he was not a good athlete, he could still be involved with the game he loved. I mean, do we just want to talk about Zausmer now? Because I feel like McNeil's the big chunk. Yeah, I guess we get it out of the way. We're the yeah, year. so give us a little breakdown on Zausmer. Uh, we, we're trying to get him on the podcast. I reached yeah. out to him. He told me to hit up the Mets PA. or PA. Um, what's the word I'm looking PR. for? The, PR. That's it. PR person. Um, then maybe we'll get him on. I, he was on another podcast, so I, I don't see why not. Another podcast who rates like slightly worse than ours, so I think it's possible. But he's the Mets' new assistant general manager. They hired him last year away from the Dodgers to head up the research and development department, and he did a very good job in year one as the Mets shifted basically as much as every team in baseball besides the Dodgers and more than every other team in baseball against right-handed hitters besides the Dodgers. So it's very clear that uh, he was instrumental in their defensive um renaissance i'll call it a defensive renaissance for the mets last year and a big reason why they improved so much on that side of the ball 
I love this guy so much. Just reading about him, listening to him talk, I would literally take a bullet for him. Like, I love him so much. Like, Harvard graduate, as Mark mentioned before, got his degree in applied mathematics and computer science, which is exactly what we want. So smart. So smart. An actual living, breathing genius. And something that Mark didn't say before that I just alluded to to start this whole segment is that he is a lifelong baseball obsessive. He's from, I remember, I read an anecdote about him before, and he's either from the Philadelphia area or he took a trip to Philadelphia, a road trip to see a game and him and his dad listened to the audiobook of Moneyball together. He was 11 years old and like from that moment, like that was it. He was like, I want to work in baseball analytics. Like I want to take my love for math and apply it to my like favorite thing in the world, which is baseball. And he literally said like, I couldn't catch or throw, but I felt like I was motivated knowing I could have a place in this game. And he ran with that. He just became obsessed with math, computer science. Again, applied mathematics is something that I don't even think you or I can like even possibly understand. I don't even know what it means. Uh, I've applied mathematics to things, but I don't think that's what applied mathematics is. I'm assuming it's much more difficult. It's applying mathematics to like things that we don't even think we can apply mathematics to, like how people thought about baseball and the Oscars, but we'll get to that. But he wa- went to Harvard. Again, he, was on, he knew he wanted to be on this track, so he got an internship with Baseball Reference after his freshman year, which is a pretty big deal, but a lot of code goes into Baseball Reference. He had other ops jobs during his summers. He, ended, he called on with the Dodgers right after school. He was with them for six years, working up from an analyst to becoming like one of the head directors of their baseball operations department before being hired by the Mets and Steve Cohen last offseason to run our R&D. And the guy's just like a living legend. On top of being a super genius and just being like such a funny, quirky guy, like he has had all these crazy side hustles along with baseball that are like incredibly impressive. He was announced Harvard basketball during his undergrad. Like that's pretty cool. That's cool. Loves all sports. He also legitimately ran Justin Turner's fantasy football team, starting from when he was just like an analyst for the Dodgers. Like he was basically a twenty-one year old, probably not a little older, probably like a twenty-three year old kid, and he was literally grabbed by Justin Turner and Brandon McDaniel, who was the director of athletic development and performance science with the Dodgers to run their team because they were bad for so many years. And this is kind of a thing that's like in like the baseball internet space that the Dodgers have this wildly competitive fantasy football league. Remember that video from a playoff game a couple of years ago when Bellinger was taking BP and like he ran away like screaming and like freaking out about some shit because he like yeah. made a trade. Yeah, no, they're that Dodgers clubhouse, fantasy football, everything. They're inc- incredibly competitive. When I was in there for spring training, they played ping pong more serious than I've ever seen it been played. They were sweating, running, screaming. They lose. They throw paddles. They get into things. They don't like losing. No, and apparently there's a monster cash prize on top of this league. Justin Turner said it's serious and he would not disclose. And Justin Turner was making like $18 million a year. So it seems like it's a pretty serious prize. They always have to draft at like one of their mansions. But um, McDaniel and Turner had been bad for a couple of years. And Farhan Zaidi, now the, the genius general manager of the Giants, was um, he was dominating the league. He was in the middle of a three-peat and no one could touch him. And McDaniel just like talked to Zausmer in passing because when you're like a tiny analyst for these clubs, you never interact with anybody real. You just walk around, keep your head down. They treat you like shit. You work like 17 hours a day for $12 an hour. There's nothing going on there. And he heard them talking about the way he like analyzes players and like uses math. And he was like, we got to get this guy in. And he called him to the locker room. He was like, you want me to come to the locker room or the clubhouse? He was like, really? He was like, yeah. And McDaniel and Turner were just sitting right there and we're like, hey. We want your help in fantasy football this year. And this is the first time Zausmer had ever like actually 
talk to a player, made eye contact with them. So he was like, yeah, okay, I'll help you guys the draft. And they were like, all right, great, we're going to fly you out to Kershaw's house for the draft. He was like, yeah, sure, you're going to fly me to Kershaw's <laughs> house for the draft. And then they sent him his flight that they bought for him for the draft, and they literally flew him in secret. Like, they didn't tell anybody on the team that he was going to be a part of this draft because that was not part of his job description yet to go on road trips with the team. So they flew him there, commercial, they got in the room in the team hotel. They said, keep your head down. Don't tell anybody. They Ubered him to Kershaw's house. And this was the first time he had ever met Clayton Kershaw was before their fantasy football draft. And they actually became a pretty successful team after that. I don't think they won a championship. The article I wrote, I read was from 2019, so I don't know what happened in the stead there. But it's a pretty incredible story. And then even past that, talking about side hustles, this guy runs the best Oscar-predicting algorithm on planet Earth. Like He's written a book. He's been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Inside Hollywood, that video that went all around the other day when he actually got the AGM job with the Mets. Like He's a legend in this space. Again, he's written a book. Like He's been writing in the New York Times consistently. He was writing for them through last April. Well, what's so funny is his Twitter is entirely dedicated to the Oscars. 100%. There's, There's no, no baseball at all. Yeah, no baseball whatsoever. It is all Oscars all the time. And he has a pretty good following for just strictly talking about predicting the Oscars and the Golden Globes or whatever else he does. He is a math whiz. This dude's IQ is off the charts. The conversation, if he does get on here, that we're going to have with him, he's going to be like, oh, my God, these simpletons. Like, why am I, you know, uh, mingling with these pedestrians? It's just like... I don't think that's true because every time I've heard him talk and any op-eds have been written about him, he's such a funny, nice, quirky guy. Like, he has that classic LLB backpack that all of the nerds in elementary school have. He still has it. It says Ben on it. Yeah, no, no. He's he's just smarter than we could ever imagine. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm sure he's a nice guy. I No... These dudes who are on another level genius-wise are never jerks, it feels like. They just are smarter than we could ever imagine. No, absolutely, and I think that's one of the best things about him. He's actually talked about wanting to take advantage of City Field's weirdness. We've mentioned a couple times about how the Rockies really should be creating a front office and a team that takes advantage of Coors Field, but City Field has some weirdness of its own. City Field, more than most other parks in baseball, suppresses exit velocity, and no one really knows why. And last year, when Zausmer got this job, he said he was committed to figuring out why it happens, how it happens, and how he can create an advantage for the Mets and how he does it. So this guy is the exact type of nerd we want to run this team. Like, there's a world where he just becomes the Mets GM one day. Like, he can be our Stearns. He can be our Bloom. Like, this guy is someone who could really rise up very quickly in the baseball world. And I hope the Mets do everything we can to keep him around. Apparently, he was also super uh, involved in the draft stuff as well. And that, you know, finding these prospects and seeing what they're able to do and kind of projecting what they're going to be. And apparently across the board with the Mets and even around the league, they were super impressed with how the Mets drafted last year. And a big part of the reason is because of Zausmer. Yeah, I mean, this guy, only five years out of college, was tasked last year running the Mets' entire research and development department. Now six years, he's going to be one of the one of the three Mets assistant general managers and it's just very clear that he's operating on a different plane than most other people not even in the world but even inside of baseball and it's pretty refreshing that we have him on our side we have our nerd we've been looking for this guy we We have have our nerd we have our nerd can't lose him don't let anyone else hire this guy's a GM god damn it no way just keep paying him keep giving him upgrades whatever it takes to keep this guy around the New York Mets it's going to be to our advantage. I've never used this term to describe like another adult male, but he's so cute. 
Oh my god. Like, did you hear him talk? Like, he's so, like, nice. He's so, like, he's so, like, lo- he's just a lovely gentleman. He seems like a genuinely, like, I, like a, just like a nice nerdy dude. He's like, I like baseball and I like numbers and I figured it out. <laughs> he also really reminds me of Nathan Fielder. Ooh, point, yes, I can see it. The point he knows, like, the tone of his voice, like, he kind of reminds me of that. And I feel comforted because I love Nathan Fielder. Yeah, that's one of the legends of TV for sure. But Zausmer uh, getting that promotion, while I don't necessarily know how actually significant it is, it's probably more of a title thing, he's going to be very much involved just like he was last year. It's definitely more of a title thing because now we've been guaranteed that no one else can hire him for an assistant general manager. We talked about this during the hiring process a few months ago, but now for any team to hire Zausmer away, they would have to make him a general manager, which again, this is all like bullshit. Yeah. In baseball, like we should just make Ben Zausmer the the czar of analytics, so no one can do anything else. Because I don't want this guy to go anywhere. But as long as he's, as long as Steve treats him well, like we got it. Yeah, no, it's good and uh, good for Ben Zausmer getting that promotion. Great for Hell ben yeah, Zausmer, love this guy. Now let's flip the script here and talk about maybe some moves that he's going to be involved in here because we have the Jeff McNeil trade rumors. Like I said, Pat Ragazzo, uh, funny enough, Berkeley Heights guy. Played baseball with all his friends. He was great friends with one of my friends, Brad Norris, when he was at Salisbury. So a little shout out there. But uh, he reported that Jeff McNeil apparently is on the trade block. The Mets were trying to trade him before the lockout. And now they're going to be actively trying to shop him after the lockout. Me and James have been going back and forth about this for the last week or so. About I'm on the side of I don't think we should be trading McNeil. James is, I think, a little more so. If the price is right, we should. Um, And there's a lot of different ways to go with it. I think... The consensus, though, between me and James right now is that Met fans are probably overvaluing McNeil's current value on the market as compared to what players we would be able to get back. That being said, it's not that he can't get back to where I think he once was, but right now, he's probably at his lowest value as a Mets player that he's had. He probably is at his lowest value as a Mets player, but I think that is more in terms of where he's at currently between like his age and his contract status rather than his recent production. Like I don't think anybody around baseball thinks that either Jeff McNeil is 2019 Jeff McNeil, who was a 150 WRC plus guy, or that he was 2021 Jeff McNeil, who was a 90 WRC plus guy. Like I know that this is the take that's been going around Twitter. I think it's just a little bit lazy because most baseball teams, most because basically just everyone except the Rockies, is valuing players in like from a projection standpoint. And all of Jeff McNeil's projections that are available to the public right now, which is simply just Steamer, it shows him still being like one of the better second basemen offensively in baseball. Like currently on Steamer projections right now, only seven second basemen have a higher projected WRC plus than Jeff McNeil. And that list is pretty robust. It is only Max Muncy, Jose Altuve, Brandon Lau, Marcus Semien, Ketel Marte, Glaber Torres, and DJ LeMahieu. So Jeff McNeil currently has a higher projected WRC plus in 2021 than Jorge Polanco, Ozzy Albies, Jay Cronenworth, Jonathan India, Kike Hernandez, Gavin Lux, Jonathan Scope. Like, the list goes on. Gene Segura. Like, there are a lot of second basemen that I think most people in baseball will think that Jeff McNeil is a better offensive player then. And two of those seven guys that you listed in LeMayu and Muncy are not really going to be the second baseman on their teams right now. So like even then, it's like he's one of the top five guys if you're actually talking about dudes who are really going to play second base majority for their team. Offensively, that is definitely his strong suit. Now defensively at second base, he's fine. He's whatever. He's, he's not anything special. You move him to third, gets a little bit weaker. And then the outfield is actually pretty good, which I think is another big thing for McNeil's value is that while he can play second, he's also very solid out in the outfield. Now, he's not going to provide you the same, I feel like, offensive value if you put him in the corner as he would at second base comparative to everyone else in the league. 
but he's still good enough offensively with that good enough glove where, like, you give him a shot. You don't feel bad putting him out there. He's no Aaron Altair or Albert Almora Jr. No, and there's a lot of teams that could use a guy who can play second and corner outfield and hit better than league average. I don't know if Jeff's ever really going to be a third baseman because given the way the Mets moved guys around last year, only playing him for five innings at the hot corner, based on all of the internal data they probably have on him, shows that that probably is not his fit. But again, like, Teams love versatility. We've talked a lot during the season about how having guys who play multiple positions who allow you to use your other roster spots in different ways can add like a win or two on your team's projection for a full season. But I think the thing that is really hurting Jeff McNeil's trade value and which is why his value right now is at the lowest it really has ever been is because he's about to turn 30. He's coming off a very serious soft tissue injury and he's entering arbitration for the first time. So while he is still cheap, he's getting like a, like a six times raise compared to the last three years, which that's not really major because he's probably only going to make like two to three million this year, but that's going to go up to like five or six next year, which is probably going to wind up being eight or nine the year after. So that's not major money, but that's just more money than the minimum he was making. Like you trade a guy like Jeff McNeil who's making the minimum, you can get an arm and a leg for him. Now you trade the guy like Jeff McNeil who's making a few million, you get a little bit less, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the money thing is a lot less important than you're making it out to be if we're trading him to like the Rays or some of the other teams they have listed but then it makes a little more sense but like I think the teams that are really going to be interested in McNeil are the teams that are trying to win right now like that aren't the you know the the guys down lower in the payroll and they don't care about paying him the extra two or three million I think you're actually completely incorrect on that because the teams who are still trying to win but don't have a lot of offense are generally teams who are poor as shit so a couple million dollars here and there actually does mean a lot to these teams. And a lot of these teams who are going to be... We'll get to this a little bit talking about the fits because I still want to talk more specifically about Jeff and what he can be moving forward. But this is a weird line to walk because the teams that you're going to trade Jeff McNeil to very much need offense. They're trying to compete on a budget and they have a surplus of pitching. And the teams who, off the top of my head, that comes to mind are the Oakland Athletics, the Cincinnati Reds, and the Milwaukee Brewers. And those are three teams who a million dollars here and there actually does mean a lot. So I think that the few million that Jeff's making this year compared to last year is somewhat meaningful. It's not like the be-all and end-all. It's not killing his trade value because he's only going to make three mil this year, five mil next year, probably eight or nine mil the year after that. But it's still something. I feel like, you know, this is the outside looking in, but I feel like the thing that's hurting McNeil's trade value the most right now, like besides last year kind of got exposed a little bit for like, Again, we don't think he's that bad, but there were some things that were concerning with his offensive game last year, especially with how like team shifted against him and he just couldn't get hits when they were shifting like that because we know how he hits the ball on the ground a lot. Um, but I-, I think just the fact that the Mets are making it so open that they want to trade Jeff McNeil, it's like, oh, you- here's a guy that we don't want. What are you going to give us for him? Well, you don't want him, so you're we're not going to give you nearly as much. I really do think maybe that's a little like uh, old school thinking or a little naive of me, but like it seems like when you are just openly talking about a guy you don't want on your team or you're looking to trade, what incentive would teams really have to be aggressive in what they offer you when you seemingly are trying to find people to take him from you? That is an incredibly good point. I think that is relevant when you look at how teams value a certain player, especially because the biggest reason seems like the Mets do want to dump McNeil is for internal issues. You know, like this is a guy who, for the first 250 games of his career, from 2018 through 2020, three basically, one basically complete season, two partial seasons just because of how things worked out. He had a 140 WRC+. plus. He was worth 8.6 F4, and he had an 884 OPS. Like you see those three things over 250 games, 
this profiles as one of the better offensive players, literally in all of baseball. So you're like, why would this guy be traded? Why would the Mets sign Eduardo Escobar for $10 million when it's not really an exact fit? You know, why are they steadfast about keeping around J.D. Davis, who doesn't really have good trade value, but doesn't have, like, negative trade value, you know? Like, you can get, like, a medium relief pitcher probably for J.D. Davis, you play your cards right. But then you look at what happened with Jeff McNeil last year, and it kind of looks like that the Mets have been looking for a way out of this for maybe longer than we think. Again, he only played five innings at third base. That was something we thought he could do. The Mets clearly don't think he can. He had some minor issues at second base, including communication with Francisco Lindor that culminated in an actual fight, which rarely happens for baseball teams. He was injured, and he has... I don't want to say he's been injury-prone his career, but definitely seems like he's been injured more than most guys. Like, there's something that's happened to him. Jeff was also one of the players who, at the beginning of the season, we knew was not vaccinated, and he... It wasn't mentioned anymore, but the Mets did never reach that threshold, so there's a chance that he wasn't, not speculating HIPAA, you know? And also, I don't, it's not it's not really our business whether someone's vaccinated or not, but the Mets, again, were one of those teams, and teams last year had different rules on what they could do outside of the games when they were on the road, depending on whether they hit the vaccination threshold or not. The Mets were not one of those teams. He also like got really mad all the time. He's done this his whole career. Like it's hard to be a baseball player and have these major peaks and valleys with your emotions. Like everyone could probably see that just by watching him. And he just couldn't really hit last year and didn't really make that much sense. Why? And Something else that came out was that he was a little bit cavalier with the shifts, and this is something we just talked about with Ben Zausmer, that the Mets were one of the teams who shifted the most in baseball, and apparently rumor has it that Jeff McNeil wasn't the most thrilled about that, and that's not really something that other teams would like when a guy is doing his own thing out there rather than what the, the geniuses are telling you to do. And then you had those weird comments that Zach Scott made over the summer that some players, again, were being ca- cavalier with shifting and then also with the fitness and hydration programs that the Mets were laying out for them. And not that it definitely was Jeff, but not also that it definitely wasn't. You kind of put all these things together, and it seems like you can see a pattern that developed. Yeah, there were definitely some concerns about what was going on with McNeil, you know, on the field as well as off the field. The thing that always stuck out with me was, again, the Lindor fight game, because we all know what happened. At the absolute worst, there was a choking out between the two and a pushing and shoving, which is just so crazy to even say out loud. But I was at this game sitting in the, what was it, Pepsi Corner? Is that what it's called now? The Coke Corner. Coca-Cola Corner, Pepsi Corner, whatever it is. Was sitting there, and what you guys didn't see on TV or even hear on the radio, however you were taking in the game, unless you were at the field, was that McNeil kind of got in the way of Lindor making a play right before that fight happened in the in between the innings, and Lindor turned around to center field and screamed fuck three times. Screamed it. I mean, top of his lungs to the point where I was like, oh my God, like, that was so loud. I heard it up here. And it was because it seemed like McNeil got in the way. And then crazy enough, the next half inning, that's exactly when all everything went down. There clearly is some sort of, I don't want to say animosity because that makes it seem like hate, but Jeff McNeil and Francisco Lindor seem to be be a little bit of, uh, you know, oil and vinegar here, where it's just they don't mix well whatsoever, and I don't know... Is it oil and water? Because oil and vinegar is a great mix. Yeah, but don't they... Do they mix together? Oh, actually, they do separate when you put them in the thing together, I think, yeah. Yeah, so they they can be together, but they will separate it sometimes. It does seem like they're a little bit of oil and vinegar right now, because Lindor is a happy-go-lucky guy. When he's struggling, he's going to have a smile on his face no matter what. When Jeff McNeil's playing well, he's going to be pissed off no matter what. We know it is. He's a hard-ass. 100%. 
these two guys don't get along together, it seems like, or are going to have difficulties at least meshing. And we see that Conforto is going to be out of the clubhouse right now. He's not coming back, it seems like, with the Mets. They talked about when Billy Epler came in and bringing in Max Scherzer that they want to bring in this new attitude, this new field of the clubhouse. They want a culture change. And it feels like McNeil is kind of part of the older culture that was with this Mets team of the last few years. And not that he's expendable, because I do think that the Mets are better with McNeil on this team than without him. And I still want him in New York, um, you know, biased as well. But I don't know. To me, it feels like I wouldn't trade him right now, but I understand why the Mets are thinking about it. I don't think they're crazy. It's just not my choice. At the end of the day, they're trying to keep Francisco Lindor happy. If Lindor wants Jeff McNeil gone, unfortunately... That's how it's going to work. There's a guy getting paid $300 million versus Jeff McNeil who's getting arbitration. You keep the guy you're paying $30 million a year happy. It's it's tough. It's not the move I would make, but I, I completely understand why, which I hate. I hate it. I agree with everything you're saying on both sides of this coin. It also just can't be underestimated how strange of a player Jeff McNeil is. I talked about the stats his like first couple of years in the league stats from before, and they were great. But he also did it in a pretty unconventional way, being kind of this like spray hitter without that much power besides for the, the rabbit ball year that everybody had crazy power. And again, he's still, the WRC Plus is something that takes everyone's stats into account. He was still well above average that year, one of the best hitters in baseball. But this is still a guy who's just like never really hit the ball particularly hard and has constantly be going, been going through this identity crisis at the plate based on whether he wanted to be like more of a contact guy or more of a power guy. And he's still always been a contact guy because he still has like one of the lowest K rates in baseball every single year he's been in the, in the league, including 2021. One of the highest contact rates of any guy in the league since, again, since he's been in the league, including 2021. Some of the highest slugging percentages for guys in his like range of contact of anyone in baseball besides 2021, because that was the big difference that happened last year. But Jeff's never had a fly ball rate over 40%. It's trended down since his rookie year. I mean, like he's just kind of an old-school player getting caught up right now in the way baseball is changing and whether or not he wants to change. And we see it at times during the year where there's a conscious effort that McNeil is trying to hit the ball in the air more, trying to drive the ball more. Even in 2020 during the quarantine, I remember seeing him at City Field in those games and he was higher up in his stance. He was taller. He was finishing higher as well. He was clearly trying to hit the ball with some more lift. And then even in 2021, you saw him go through times like this. And shout out to me. I pointed it out to him and uh, he apparently made a change because of what he saw from me. So that was cool. But He's going through these different phases and these different stances and trying to change everything, and it kind of all culminated into 2021, which is why there was so much inconsistency in his play, as well as the fact that he was dealing with that soft tissue injury that you mentioned with the hamstring. It was just kind of a bad year for him, a little bit of a nightmare. So it's like, do you get rid of a guy because we saw him kind of at his worst? But like, I also don't think that most teams in baseball are going to think about Jeff McNeil as at his worst. Because if you like pull back the curtains on what Jeff McNeil did last year, there was a lot of good, or at least a lot of the same. He hit the hardest ball of his career last year, the 108.3 miles an hour. And while that's not the elite range, it's better than anything he's ever done. So you could think that maybe something's happening there. And again, we talk about the shift hurting Jeff McNeil, but his Woba against the shift was better than not against the shift. So it seems like he's still finding ways to get hits within the shift. And, like, his 2019 was the outlier. We've said that a few times. But if you take that out and you look at 2018 and 2020, which, again, they were both 60-game samples just for whatever reasons they were. Like, his exit velocity and fly balls and line drives are basically the same. His expected woba was still the same. Most of his other expected stats were still the same. This was just a guy who was overachieving on those expected stats and last year underachieved on them. But, like, the true talent seems like it's kind of 
level. And that, I think, is how other teams are going to value Jeff McNeil. That is why, again, I think that this is a lazy take when people think that we're trading him after his worst production because Major League Baseball teams are not looking at his RBIs and his batting average, and that's what they're trading for. They're trading for his projections and his expected stats because that's what they're using internally. So then why would the Mets want to trade him, though? Because, like, you you seemingly have to get a piece back that is going to improve your team more than having him there. And I feel like right now, I mean, Robinson Cano seems to be, like, our other second baseman if it's not Jeff McNeil. And Escobar. And Escobar. And Escobar's going to have to play third base right now based on what we've got. So it's like we're relying on a 39-year-old second baseman coming off of a steroid suspension. So who knows if he's going to be able to go for a full year. One swing of the bat. Like, I don't know. I love having the insurance of Jeff McNeil and the fact that, like, he was probably going to get 450, 500 at-bats anyway just because of his versatility and positions. I don't like weakening our depth if we're not going to actually really improve. Like, I don't want to get worse on the offensive side to get better on pitching, but it ends up being like a, a, a medium zero. Like, there's actually no change. And that is possible. We can't really know that until this lockout ends and the Mets have a shot to go after other free agents or other players in trades because it's probably easier to upgrade a second base than it is to upgrade a starting pitcher. Like, that's something that I feel like end corner outfield, as we saw the Mets do already. Like, that's something that's pretty obvious across the Major League Baseball market. And also, I think there is just a world. I think it's like a pretty strong chance that we've seen Jeff McNeil's best season. Like that 2019 will probably never be replicated. Yeah. I don't think, I think that's also not fair to Jeff because he was so good that year and there were so many other things at play. Like he was hit lead off most of the year. The Mets lineup was pretty fucking good for most of the year. That ball was insane. The Mets got crazy hot. He got really hot. Like a lot of things happened, but there's also this world where the projections might be overselling Jeff McNeil because those projections are using the production from years that might not be able to be replicated by Jeff. And a lot of that does have to do with the way teams are shifting him. And I did mention a few minutes ago that his Woba was better against the shift than not. But I do think that maybe Savant isn't fully capturing all the shifts against Jeff McNeil and that we all as fans and us as podcasters and content creators in general kind of have to maybe reimagine the way that we perceive shifts because Jeff is being shifted twice as much compared to when he was a rookie in 2018. And last year, he was shifted over 50% of the time in general, which is a massive jump for a guy who has been heralded as this all-field spray hitter contact guy. So that, to me, makes me think that teams have figured out something that really hasn't become public yet, you know? And if you look at the shifts that teams are playing against Jeff McNeil, they're not always the market shift where the second baseman's in the hole, the third baseman's a shortstop, and the player's up the middle. Most of what's happened in Jeff McNeil shift-wise has happened to the opposite field. Teams have adjusted the way they're playing him in third base and left field. Third basemen are playing much further back, and left fielders are playing much further in. And that's taking away an alley that Jeff McNeil used very well his first couple years in the league when he was very successful. He loved getting those cheap doubles and those good singles out, out against the field right there, dropping them in front of left fielders, putting them behind third baseman, or putting them just where the third baseman wasn't because they were playing shortstop because they were using extended shift. So that area has shrunk dramatically, and I think that's where Jeff is losing most of his base hits. That's why his BABIP dropped 50 points between 2020 and 2021. And you even watch him last year, and you see that there are so many base hits that seem like they were taken away that really shouldn't have been. That defenders are basically playing exactly where they know he's putting the ball. So now you're in a situation where you have a guy who's turning 30, who's dealt with soft tissue injuries, who has to either put the ball over the fence more frequently in a ballpark that doesn't really allow that, or he has to put the ball in play at different spots. So the question is whether you want to bet on that or bet on the fact that you're getting what is perceived as being the lowest value a guy's ever been, but possibly the highest it will ever be in a trade. And that's kind of why I think that a trade makes more sense than maybe some Mets fans think. Yeah, I think think that's a pretty fair 
breakdown of it, though. Like, if you're on the side, because I'm still, you know, on the side, I don't want to trade Jeff McNeil. I have my personal bias as well as I just think he's going to be valuable. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot of Met fans out there who think you'd be batshit crazy. I don't know if we're in that level. I but. don't think Jeff McNeil is not valuable. I think Jeff McNeil yeah. is a very important part of this team, and I think that he will hold plenty of value next year. He's a guy who's going to be a plus defender in multiple positions and a guy who's going to hit enough to probably be above average with the bat. I just don't think we're ever going to see the 150 WRC plus Jeff McNeil return to 320 batting average Jeff McNeil return. And I think that is where a lot of Mets fans are right now on Twitter with this argument. I don't think there's a lot of nuance happening in the Jeff McNeil trade argument. That's shocking no. that the people on Twitter don't have a lot of nuance in their, in their trade <laughs> discussions, but I just feel like that's kind of where we are, and that's where I'm having the issue. Like, I would love to keep Jeff McNeil, but I also think there's a world where we can trade him and help this team out in a good way. Well, yeah, you listed a couple teams here, and we were talking about the last few days, about, like, who could take him. It's crazy because we talk about, like, around the league, they probably know he is a good player and that there is going to be a use for him. But there's also only a few teams that really we can make a move with because of the matchup of players and who we would even want. It's so strange right now, his trade market. Yeah, like... The issue is just that we have to trade Jeff McNeil while also being competitive. Like you can trade Jeff McNeil, I'm sure, for some prospects and it'd be pretty good. The Marlins just got just traded the former first round pick who was a 130 WRC plus guy, Cameron Meisner, Misner, I don't know how you say it, for Joey Wendell, who's a full notch below Jeff McNeil. But like if that's the kind of minor leaguers being traded for Joey Wendell, I'm sure you could get two guys like that or one guy even better for Jeff McNeil. But the Mets want to get major league talent back and who the fuck wants especially pitching in general, and who the fuck wants to get a second base corner outfielder who has an unstable offensive profile for starting pitching. Everyone needs starting pitching. You want to compete. You need like seven, eight reliable starting pitchers. Like that's what makes this difficult. And that's why the trade seems less likely. Not so much of the talent matching up, but more so the needs matching up. Yeah. And some of the teams they have listed here, I mean, let's roll through them real quick and I'll let you break them down a little bit more. Got A's, Reds, Brewers, Blue Jays, Red Sox. And it's like, it's the group of teams that are competitive or trying to be competitive but also have a hole that they could fill with Jeff McNeil. Cause like the Dodgers were realistically are not making a trade and they could cause they're the Dodgers, yeah. but like realistically they'll just fill it in with someone cheaper. Like you said, but like even then like the Red Sox, like who do we get for, from the Red Sox? That's why the Red Sox is the fifth team I listed. And uh, yeah. we should go probably based on highest probability, the lowest probability. And I see the A's and the Reds as being the teams with highest probability, but those two teams can knock themselves right out of the running just based on the fact that they might just be tearing the whole thing down. Like, these two teams don't really do that. They love hanging out in that, like, 75 to 80 win range and seeing if something good... The Mets range. Yeah, where the Mets used to be. The poor range. The poor competitive range. Yes. Where you want to see what you have, and if things break right, then you jump in. Like, you kind of just wade in the pool for the first two months of the season. Then you see where your projections line you up after you actually have some, some, um, I don't even know, some production that is laid out for you, and you can see it, like, on first hand. And... The A's make a lot of sense just because they have two pitchers with one year remaining on their contract who are in that middling range where the A's would like to trade them and also see if they can replace them on the cheap. And those two guys are Sean Manaya and Chris Bassett. Because, again, they've never really torn it all the way down under Billy Bean. So, and they're gonna, there's rumors that they're going to be moving to a new city with a new stadium in the next collection of years. So there's no reason that they would want to be like horrifically bad. And they still have a lot of decent pieces there to where they can be mildly competitive. There's a playoff team, like, what, four of the last five years, three of the last five years? Like, there's still a lot of things there that are good. And Minai is going to cost them 10 mil this year. He's one year away from free agency. Jeff's going to be, like, three-year, $12 million player. And the A's do have a massive need between second base and corner outfield, so he makes a lot of sense. 
Same thing with Chris Bassett. He's going to be a little bit cheaper than Minai, but he's also probably a little bit better than Minai. So you might have to give McNeil and some prospect that doesn't matter to get him. I, I feel like, especially too, like with the A's, if you're going to trade Minai or Bassett, like the, the idea of like they would probably, if they're trying to do this rebuild, like McNeil's kind of not that guy. But even then, like you trade Manaya, let's just say for McNeil, as basic as that sounds, that trade wouldn't happen. But as basic it as could it is, happen. it's possible. Yeah, as basic as that is, you at least then have McNeil, who you, then you could flip to a team for prospects if you really want to. That wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for the A's either. I don't think. No, definitely. And again, at the end of the day, the A's will have upgraded one spot in their lineup. We don't know where Jeff McNeil's going to play, but he's going to be an upgrade over the worst hitter in their lineup right now. Which who God knows who that is. And Chad they, Pinder, or yeah, but Chad, Chad Pinder has some decent projections. But that's the most important thing for them is that they will ha- they have an obvious spot to upgrade. But then the question is whether, and then they'll also be saving probably like eight or nine million dollars on this year's uh, payroll, which the A's love doing that more than anything else. Uh, their rich ass owner loves pocketing those eight or nine million dollars a year. So that's something that could make sense, but that only is if the A's want to do the retooling rather than the rebuilding, which is something they've done in the yeah. past. So they make sense. The Reds are another team who makes a lot of sense, but I don't want anyone to think that we can trade Jeff McNeil as a centerpiece for Luis Castillo. That does not make any sense. Luis Castillo is a guy who's very well regarded within baseball still. He had a down year last year, similar to McNeil, but also similar, similarly to McNeil. He's very valuable. He's still super good. Like No one should think that we're buying low on Luis Castillo. That doesn't really exist in Major League Baseball. These teams are much smarter than, than we think. Yeah, and Luis Castillo also, like we looked into his numbers, if he played behind a defense that was somewhat competent, he would look a lot better too because the Reds' defense is just atrocious. And he pitched in cold weather for like a month and a half. And that really and in Cincinnati. Him. Yeah, in a, a ridiculous ballpark. Again, I didn't misspeak last episode. Luis Castillo had the highest ground ball rate in all of baseball, but he had Eugenio Suarez playing shortstop on the bad days and Kyle Farmer playing shortstop on the good days. Like, this yeah. isn't really a good defense behind him. We get Lindor, and I don't even actually, the Mets infield defense doesn't even look great right now. So we get it's Lindor. A little shaky right now. We get Lindor. We get... Lindor alone is a huge upgrade, though. Massive upgrade, and shifting, and 50% shifts. Like, that will do wonders for Luis Castillo, but you probably have to include Ryan Mauricio and Jeff McNeil if you want to get Luis Castillo. And some Mets fans will slap me in the face for saying that, but that is the truth. Like, that's how you get Luis yeah. Castillo. He's a premier player. So the other option there becomes Sonny Gray, who is similar to Manaya and Bassett because he's on a one-year deal right now with a club option for 2023. And also... Which is cheap. Cheap. He's, he's, he's look, you're looking at like $24 million for these two years. And that's only because Sonny Gray has some hysterical uh, bonuses for that club option. He gets $100,000 each for whether he, he throws 150, 160, 170, 180, or 190 innings. He gets $1 million just straight up off the top if he gets traded. He has Cy Young escalators, which I guess there's a world where Sonny Gray could be top 10 for Cy Young, but he has MVP escalators. Sonny Gray makes an extra $2 million in 2023 if he wins the MVP next year. Which seems like not enough. See, it seems like that should have been like $20 million escalator. He gets escalators again, I said, for the innings pitched. He gets them also for an all-star selection. That could That's something that could happen, but then... These are pennies on the dollar, Steve Cohen. I just thought it was funny that Sonny Gray is an MVP escalator in his contract, like Brian Buxton, even though he's not going to win an MVP anytime soon. Yeah, I can hear I can hear Mets fans screaming, Sonny Gray, he stunk with the Yankees. It's like, no, he's, a, he's a good pitcher. He's, he's a, good he's pitcher. a different Yankees, guy. Yankees didn't let him throw his best pitch, which was a slider, which was, didn't really make any sense to me. The Larry Rothschild special. Yeah, they've also, they also failed Lance Lynn, so I don't think it's a New York thing. I think it's a Yankees internal pitching development thing that has failed the last few years. It's also Yankee Stadium versus City Field. Like, let's really, yeah. let's call a spade a spade here. It's incredibly different environments to pitch in. Also, the NL East versus the AL East. Like, we can't yeah. be weird about this New York City thing with Sonny Gray. It's really, I think, a Yankee thing. Yeah, and then you also have the Brewers listed on here, which... Before that, like, do the Reds want Jeff McNeil? Like, you know what I mean? They have Jonathan India locked in at second base. They have Eugenio Suarez, while he was awful the last two years, locked in very cheaply at third base, not a shortstop. And then they also have 
Aristides Aquino, who's cheap as shit, who they probably want to get a look at. They have Tyler Nakin, who's cheap. They want to get a look at. They have to get Winker. Nick. Winker is locked in left field 100%. Nick Senzel, they have to give him a shot if he's ever healthy again. Like, there is a question on whether they even want Jeff McNeil's skill set and whether they would really do that for Sonny Gray, you know? For Sonny Gray, you could probably get a, a prospect who could be more controllable than Jeff McNeil with a higher ceiling. So that's why McNeil's just a weird guy to trade. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, he doesn't have a spot in that Reds team, truly. Like, he is better than Aristides Aquino. But, no, like, of for the Reds who aren't trying to be better, they're just trying to have a competitive team, what do they care about winning 82 as opposed to 79 games? Like, there's no way the Reds can look at Jeff McNeil versus Sonny Gray and say, this makes our team better. What they could say is, this gives us an extra $8 million next year and an extra $9 million next year, so we could do it for that reason. Like, that's what yeah. these trades are for these teams you're taking money on, you know? Yeah. And then in terms of the Brewers, I mean, it's again like a fit thing. Like he does and he doesn't fit. He Do the fits Brewers more really want to with trade the Brewers him? Brewers' philosophy because they have shown like a clear willingness to just get players rather than seeing a fit. Like last year, the Brewers didn't really need a second baseman, and they still acquire Colton Wong, who's fine. He's going to be about league average with the bat and plus with a glove. But there's a reason that McNeil's better than Colton Wong, and he would be a good platoon partner for him. Same with Hunter Renfro, who comes in as a pretty good player but he's still a right-handed hitter and I think having a lefty to mix in with him would make a lot of sense and they're also like they're going to give a lot of at-bats to either Riley Tellez or Kesson Hira at first who neither of them I think really profiles being very good players Renfro can play first base so there's a way for Jeff McNeil to get basically the same role he would have this year with the Mets with the Brewers who again have shown to want to do that with players they just want to bring in talent rather than have an obvious fit for them because they're actively trying to win a World Series they've won the best rotations in baseball he makes a lot of sense for them. But I think that the trade pieces that Jeff McNeil brings back from the Brewers would make Mets fans want to choke me out because you're looking at <laughs> Eric Lauer and Adrian Hauser. And like that <laughs> is actually what makes sense in a swap for Jeff McNeil. Maybe you get a relief pitcher on top of that, similarly to how they traded J.P. Fireyes and Andrew Rasmussen last year for Willie Adamas. But like you want to get Hayther, you got to throw a big-time prospect on top of him too, you know? And that's a reliever. Yeah. That's not a starter. The Mets' real need is a starter. Yeah, and that's, you know, those would be the guys. Hauser's pretty good, and Lauer is boring but good. I but, mean, yeah, yeah Lauer again. probably projects a little bit better than Hauser. Both of those guys are eating 140 innings next year, and that'll be that's pretty valuable. You put them in city field, they can let fly balls be allowed all day long. And you want to get even maybe Hayther plus Hauser, you could probably give up McNeil plus Vientos. And that, you probably have to give up a pretty good prospect. Yeah, like yeah. a solid prospect, but probably not someone on Mauricio's tier. And that's probably okay if you do Vientos plus some guy in like the Mets, like back end of the top 10, top 15, a lot younger guy with crazy upside because the Brewers like that. It's just these trades aren't things that Mets fans want to hear, but this is realistically what's going to happen. And then again, just quickly to end this up, you have two teams between the Blue Jays and the Red Sox who definitely have a clear need for Jeff McNeil because the Blue Jays have horrific offensive depth in general, as goes the top end of that team's offenses. It's dead. They don't even have they don't have one bench bat who is even projected to be within 20% of league average. They have two catchers projected on their bench right now as of roster resource. Yeah, and one of them's Reese McGuire, who's just kind of bad at everything. Really bad at everything, yeah. And they, I know Santiago Espinal is your boy, but he's right now their everyday third baseman. And, <laughs> no, I know, yeah. And Kevin, Kevin Biggio is their projected second baseman. This team, though, isn't afraid to spend money, so I could really see them being involved with Kyle Seager and Chris Bryant. But, like, McNeil's— Trevor Story, too. Yeah, Trevor Story, too. That that would be such a sick move. And I've been calling Trevor Story this offseason Marcus Semyon for a few months now. That'd be crazy for them. But they do make sense as a team who would very drastically upgrade with Jeff McNeil. You put them in that ballpark around that lineup, you could really—a lot of these teams, you put Jeff McNeil in, in a great American ballpark or Miller Park, like you could really see a sick offensive season. You could probably see one adjustment— from these teams who've adjusted hitters well, giving Jeff McNeil a power 
that we have not been able to give him, seeing him become Daniel Murphy, which I saw some Mets fans tell me when I said I would trade him the other day, which I don't think that's true, but I think it's I don't think it's impossible. But like, who are you getting back from the Brewers, the Blue Jays, like Ross Stripling? Yeah, I, if if we trade Jeff McNeil for Ross Stripling, I'm I'm going to City Field. I'm starting to ride. Yeah, that, that would be upsetting. Like I think Trent Thornton and Thomas Hatch both have like kind of intriguing profiles, but I probably need those two plus Ross Stripling to make this even like remotely worth it. Yeah, and, and what you say there too is like intriguing profiles. It's like they they might be good. Like yeah, I mean, we don't know. They have done things that could be good, but they're also have both been injury prone and like not the most effective at the major league level. Thomas Hatch, I'm holding out for for years. This guy's going to be a good baseball <laughs> player. I know it for a fact. But this is now getting into the same range that. We got like Sean Reed Foley and Yancy Diaz from the Blue Jays last year, where you get guys who are going to fill roles, but there's no sexiness about it. And that the Mets did wind up definitely losing that trade because Stephen Matz wound up being a pretty solid pitcher over an extended period of time last year. Same goes for the Red Sox; like they could definitely use another guy in that like second base outfield platoon with Kike, Jaron Duran, and JBJ. But it's not obviously McNeil, and they don't have an obvious starting pitcher to give back to us. They don't even have enough starting pitchers to. Field a real team. They have the weirdest rotation I've seen in all of baseball. Yeah, and if you're a Met fan and you, you hear us talking about the Red Sox here, I swear to God, if I see you talk about Tanner Houck being traded for Jeff There's McNeil, absolutely I'm gonna, no way. Yeah, I'm gonna punch you. That guy's going nowhere. Tanner Houck is locked up. The same goes for Nate Pearson with the Blue Jays. These guys, these are not the types of guys that teams trade for Jeff McNeil. Pearson is slightly more likely because he's been not good for years, but the stuff is still like incredible. And the Blue Jays would just be stupid to give up on him, especially the way they've been developing pitchers who came from external organizations in the last few years. So. This is just like what it looks like for McNeil because I'm assuming a competitive team is going to want an upgrade on their offense. Like maybe a shit team like the Pirates or the Orioles or the Angels who could easily use a second baseman would do this. But who are you getting from them? Why would they even yeah. want him? Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it's hard to find a trade partner for Jeff McNeil if you want major league talent back. And that's the problem. It's kind, of, it's kind of the problem we're running into is what do we get back for Jeff McNeil? Because if you are moving him, you got to get something back. And the possibilities are kind of limited. They're kind of kind of tight. And then at the end of the day, we got we went through this whole half hour rigmarole about Jeff McNeil's current value, his future value, what he gets back in a trade. You have to look at it and say, does this actually help the Mets on the field? And it really just might not. And yeah. if the Mets do make one of these trades, we'll know for certain that this locker room stuff is more serious than anybody has led on. And if that's the case, then it might just be a move you have to make. But if that's not the case, like I don't really see how these moves obviously improve the Mets more so than they can improve themselves by just signing a litany of free agent pitchers. Yeah, I'd like to think that the locker room stuff, while it was probably a problem, give give everybody another year. We come back spring training, kumbaya, we had no baseball. We were all excited to be back. Jack McNeil's playing well, and he's still a hard ass. He's still crazy, but it's a little bit less because, you know, Francisco Lindor is playing better now. Everybody's got a little weight lift off their shoulder because this team is just, just better overall. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little hopeful. Maybe I'm trying to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but... I don't know. I I don't want to move McNeil. I I think that the locker room thing can't clubhouse can't be that big of a deal. It can't be like it might be. Uh, I would hate to th- I would hate to think that, but who knows? Who knows? Again, Francisco Lindor wins. Unfortunately, if you're a Jeff McNeil fan, there, Francisco Lindor decides what happens. Definitely. <laughs> and McNeil, at the end of the day, is an obscure talent who debuts a 26 year old who's turning 30 next year. Like, there's no reason that the Mets have been planning this entire organization around Jeff McNeil's production and. We're just never going to see 2019 Jeff McNeil again. And, like, people are going to, like, be mad at me for saying that. But that was just kind of like a lightning in a bottle situation. And, again, like, 
Jeff McNeil had more perceived trade value if you trade them after that point, but no one's fucking trading Jeff McNeil after that spot. No. He had two more years making the minimum, and he was like this revelation within the Mets world. He was a ton of fun. I love Jeff McNeil. He has provided some incredible Mets moments. That walk-off home run, the home opener this year, like yep. tons of just great late hits. He's been a guy who, I, I don't know if stats back this up, but I feel like he's been moderately clutch. Like He's also a throwback. He's an old-school guy. I love to have him around. You kind of like having a couple of those contact-oriented guys around a team that strikes out a decent amount, even though the Mets aren't going to be that next year, which even might make him more expendable. But it's, it's a guy who we've grown to like over the last few years, and it would be a shame to see him go for what's perceived as not equal value because of a clubhouse issue. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think that really is what it comes down to here to sum up this whole conversation about Jeff McNeil. If we're going to move him, which is very possible, we have to get value back for him. Who's that value going to be? Seriously, we have no clue whatsoever. There's not even an ounce of a rumor, and part of that's the lockout, of course, but the other part is it is a really hard guy to evaluate and what teams would give us back because of the situation the Mets are in and because of the positions he plays and because of who these teams that could even possibly take him are in the position that they are in the money and the play. Like, it's so fakakta. It's all over the place. It's nuts. Fakakta. It's all over the place. Luckily for us, we don't have to come up with this. I would have a headache. I say this all the time. But I really, it's a good problem I guess the Mets have is trying to trade Jeff McNeil, which is, is kind of weird to say. It is, but it's also just, it's an obscure problem. And again, he, you're not going to use him in the trade for Matt Chapman unless you're trading multiple great prospects. You need to trade a lot to get him with Luis Castillo or Josh Hader. This is just going to be a bit of an interesting situation. I want Mets fans to just fasten your seatbelts because you might not like the way it ends up. And again, don't crucify me for saying maybe we should trade Jeff McNeil or maybe we like we Jeff McNeil for Adrian Hauser or Eric Lauer makes sense but because it does make a little bit of sense, but just... Have an open mind and have a little bit, like, take a little bit of nuance in with this discussion. As because it could be the only thing we talk about the next three weeks because there's no baseball. Yeah, no, there's literally nothing else to talk about. Once we saw that news, we're like, all right, well, we got something to talk about in the next podcast. There we go. And honestly, that's it for this podcast. Messed up episode number 68. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching on YouTube, Messed Up Podcast, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Messed Up. Follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Follow me at Giraffe Neck Mark with a C. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Five star ratings on Spotify. We want them. We're asking for the five star. Thank you guys so much for the amazing support. That's where we're wrapping it up. And uh, we'll see you on episode number 69. Nice. Nice. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening.